Well, hello and welcome to episode 128 of the 1099 for the week of January 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the former creative director for the Dragon Age series, a longtime Bioware staple, and one of the best streamers on Twitch, and a returning guest. That was the last one I wanted to get in. Mike Laidlaw. Mike, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for the intro. That's a pretty awesome setup. No, well, thank you. It's, you know, there's, again, you're one of those people who has a lot of titles that I probably could have kept going with like person who worked on this and this series you love and this amazing <laughs> open world thing you did. And it's, it's funny. Last time we talked, you were in a very different situation. You were at Bioware. You were mm-hmm. still at the helm of Dragon Age. And today is going to be a mailbag episode. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of great questions about Bioware, about open world RPGs, about game development in general. But before we get into any of that, uh, I haven't heard you on too many interviews since you've left. Um, I haven't, got the chance to actually talk to you personally. So I kind of just wanted to know what is up with Mike Laidlaw? What is Mike Laidlaw doing next in 2018 and beyond that you can actually talk about? Yeah, it's, um, it's been interesting. I've been, uh, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of just took some time for myself and obviously, um, uh, one of the big things I was looking forward to is like you said, the Twitch streaming, um, Mm. it is ridiculously entertaining to be able to kind of like dig into my, shamefully enormous backlog. <laughs> um, and, and kind of like, especially, so I do the Saturday thing where, um, Saturday at like eight Pacific, I will go and play a game I've not played before on stream. That's from a small studio. And like, they always have some interesting mechanics or so whatever. I've only ever had one where I had to kind of abort. Cause I'm like, eh, I feel like this is handling race pretty uncomfortably. Oh, um, but other than that, it's been, it's been this like smorgasbord of these cool, small games or like, you know, I've done like a whole block of like, okay, let's look at different base builders and different like survivals and different, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and I have, I still have an enormous backlog there. So I'm set for most of 2018. Um, and then just generally like, you know, playing prey or playing, you know, whatever. And like, there's parts of, of every game that, you know, you love and parts of game you hate. And I, I love being able to kind of talk about them in terms of like, Oh, interesting. Look, there's a really interesting they're doing here. Like, you know, I was looking at prey and how they do flashlight mechanics, which mm. are like hyper efficient, um, but not very realistic, right? There's no shadow casting from your flashlight because they're basically just, as far as you can tell, they're just using kind of like a vignette, um, over your screen when the flashlight is on that basically illuminates part of it, um, or seems to, but I, I don't think it's actually doing that. And, uh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's really cool because it's super efficient and it's not a critical part of the game. So yeah. it's not needed to be there. So it's that. Um, and then the, the thing I've been kind of uh, uh, exploring and dallying with is the idea of kind of being available as uh, sort of a consultant where mm. uh, if people have an interest in the expertise I have over the years, uh, that being able to kind of work directly with, you know, some teams on shorter engagements, not being necessarily stuck with like a, like a long term, you know, like, you know, a, a DA ranged anywhere from a, a six year investment of focus to, you know, 18 months if it was yeah. DA2. Actually, it was a little shorter than that. But, you know, um, it was it required an intense amount of focus on a singular thing. And one of the one of the things that was kind of driving me not nuts, but that was kind of feeling like there was an opportunity out there for me to kind of grow as a designer was exposure to more teams, more studios, more challenges, more genres in the design sense. Um, and so I'm kind of, I'm kind of starting to poke around and look for that. And there's been, uh, there's been some interest and, and I haven't really even advertised, which makes it weird that there's been interest, but it's kind of thing that I'm discussing. And obviously I'm not going to talk in detail about what I'm potentially working on, but it's still, um, a really cool opportunity and kind of something I'm, I'm hungry to explore. Yeah, and I think some of the reason I like your stream so much is it's fun to get that 
someone who's actually made video games for a long time, who's made a lot of successful video games, playing other people's games and giving that mm. input and kind of talking about, oh, maybe this is why they did this or maybe why this aspect of the game didn't come completely to fruition or why this one works so well. And I, I had a feeling yeah. since you've been doing that, that might have been the moment where you're like, oh, man, what if I did this professionally? Like, what if I actually yeah. came in, looked at something and said, like, what about this, this and this? Yeah, it's all it's all educated guesses when I'm like looking at another game that's been released, right? You know, why is this where it is and that kind of stuff. What's interesting to me is the potential of of looking at a game that isn't done yet and going, "Hey, you know, okay, I'm seeing X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, some of those things are good, and some of those things are bad. Also, I'm Canadian because I said Z. <laughs> I was about to say, I see. I love the little vocal flourishes, especially I've yeah, had yeah. a lot of like Euro- European people on here, and they'll just say a word where I'm like, "Oh, that sounds so much cooler than anything I've ever right. said." Will Aluminium, never cool. Aluminium, <laughs> Uranus, dang. Um, well, I'm super interested in seeing what you eventually work on whenever you can actually go public with everything like that. Like that seems like a super perfect fit for what you're doing. And again, being on long projects. Being on big teams like that for so long, there has to just be this moment where you're like, I need to explore other things. I need to stretch my legs out. I need to see what else is going on in the world. Maybe it's smaller scale, maybe at middle scale. I mean, you look at something like uh, Hellblade, which is this bizarre double A, triple I kind of thing. Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of cool thoughts out there that I think you can just learn a lot from. And we actually have some tweets yeah. about that yeah. and questions about that. So let's get to... Uh, all these tweets and all these emails. Thank you to everyone who did send in stuff. Um, I was talking to Mike before we recorded. There was a lot of when's Dragon Age 4 coming out or why is EA the devil and certain things like that where I'm like, I'm not, we're not going <laughs> to ask these questions. But there's been a lot of incredible ones and a lot of super thoughtful ones. And uh, let's start right here. This one is from Tamarin at Kenzin11. Uh, this person asked, what lessons did you learn from the Dragon Age games that you think could be useful for your own career as well as Bioware and the games industry as a whole? That one's pretty interesting. I think for me, the thing that I came away with is that um, – and this may be a particularly Bioware focused kind of experience, but what I, what I felt is that as a, um, as a designer, I, I kind of feel like, um, the, the two biggest things were that the, 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 the character is really critical to success in terms of creating engagement. I think more so than intricate plotting, more so, um, than anything other than I would say kind of moment to moment mechanics. I, w- I would probably like stack right moment to moment mechanics, like smoothness of play, overall flow, overall, um, reduction of what we could, what we tend to think of as friction in terms of game design. Like I had to pre- every, every single time I talk, I have to press eight buttons is annoying, right? If, <laughs> if I press one button and I'm talking, then it's not right. And that's, that's a friction kind of measurement. And I think that's probably the most critical, like, um, for instance, I've been playing uh, I've been playing Warframe uh, just recently, which you know is is kind of a treat because it's it's a game that um, uh, a buddy of mine that used to work at Bioware with me, Sheldon Carter, is is working on now with Digital Extremes, and and so I finally dove into it, and I, I'd given it a try back when it first came out, but it's 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 like a night and day different game. I was going to say, hasn't that game been out for like almost like seven yep. years, but it's an entirely different thing now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and it's, there's some masterful free to play execution in there where you, you get in, you feel like it's being very fair with you and, and it's really well done. But their moment to moment gameplay, I think, is what sells Warframe because, mm. um, you know, the, the opening, the opening boss is, you know, he's, he's chewing the scenery. He's kind of a cyborg, so maybe he literally chewed the scenery. But, but the thing is, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's there to be a villain and he does a pretty good job of selling that. But he's not like, he's not like super, super memorable, but he does 
at least establish a conflict. So he's a character, but I think the thin Warframe excels at is that the flow and feel of moving the Warframe is like, there's a value proposition there that says, I am an awesome space ninja, and you feel like an awesome space ninja from moment one. And as you keep playing, you're like, whoa, I can latch onto walls and glide down things while shooting like Max Payne in slow-mo? Holy crap! <laughs> like, it, you feel like an increasingly awesome space ninja as your mastery of the game increases. So I think that you know, that moment to moment gameplay is really critical. And that's, that's not a Bioware thing. That's like a, that's a constant. Um, and I think that that is, you know, the, the lessons learned there, I think for me was probably that you take, um, <laughs> probably the most valuable lesson is take user experience feedback, as in people play testing your game, take the complaints incredibly seriously, take the suggested solutions almost not at all. Because they tend to be like, I would just, I'd, I'd do it like this. And they're always colored by personal preference and they rarely understand the limitations of memory or whatever. But the, the complaint is always valid, right? There's an unmet need of smoothness there and so on. Uh, but then the, the second thing for me is that characters, I think, are probably the thing that create a greater resonance than setting, a greater resonance in history, a greater resonance than um, – virtually anything else in the game in terms of emotional engagement, right? So yeah. if, if you can say that the um, kind of the gameplay engagement comes to that moment to moment, then I would say character is, is the other big hook that can help people try and give me someone to care about. Give me someone to want to protect or someone I want to back up or someone I want to... Yeah, and it could be me. It could be my character. I could be like, Alan Wake, man, your life seems to suck and I want to help you fix that. It could be, hey, Alex Vance, you're cute and funny and smart and your dad's cool and okay, I might be the free man smelling the ashes, but you seem worth saving. Right. Yeah. That kind of stuff will hook players in a way that I don't think anything else can because we are people and we respond well to what we feel are emoted people. Um, and so, you know, when I would sit down with the, the DA writing teams and stuff, we very rarely um, started. We, we would start discussions with like, what's going wrong? But the next question we'd ask is, but why? And who wants it to go wrong? And what's their motivation? And then who doesn't want it to go wrong? And what's their motivation? And what's my motivation? Like, it was more worried about the people and how the people responded. Because I think as a player, especially of a player of a game where you're building a party of, of a motley band of elves and dwarves, etc., who often disagreed with one another, because again, that's where their character comes from. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was the single fastest way for us to achieve um, player intimacy and player engagement. And um, I, I, I don't think anything will ever convince me that, that a really good setting will ever be really good characters. I have two comments on that. First off, uh, you mentioned Warframe before. Technically, that game is a spiritual successor to Dark Sector, which might be one of the craziest things possible that yep. from Dark Sector has now spawned this massively popular free-to-play game that's grown mm -hmm. so much. That's That and Rainbow Six Siege are maybe the two models of how games can keep its user base like really invested over a long period of time and continue to grow, even though most yep. games tail off. Yeah. Uh, second, you've worked on games. This is not a, this is a just Josiah question, not an actual tweet. You've sure. worked on games where you both create characters and you already have created characters. So there's mm -hmm. ones where essentially your personality is supposed to be driving it versus maybe someone that someone on your team writes. Uh, you mentioned that characters kind of trumps everything. Is it more difficult when you have this almost vessel that the player needs to put a personality on versus maybe you directly putting a personality into that character? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's infinitely harder. Um, what what our general approach was was to say that um, you know so the there were there were certain 
I tend to think of it as like like a bowling alley. Uh, as as a player character, you so you know again going off DA, but you you were always um, you were always a human trained soldier of exceptional caliber in Mass Effect. Right. Mm -hmm. You were always part of the Alliance. You were always, you know, uh, a new specter. Like there were certain guide rails that said you couldn't be like, I'm going to be a farmer. Like that wasn't a valid (laughs) character option. And in doing that, then what what the Mass Effect writing team did. And again, I was there for Mass One is they established kind of like what was the emotional range that Shepard could live in. Um, So they're always competent, always calm under under duress and stuff. Very rarely did Shepard lose their cool. But Shepard would and would would basically had like a big range between cooperation and intimidation. I think we're kind of the two big things. And that, that goes a little further than just like be, you know, you know, if, give baby candy, punch baby. It was more um, like, I think humans fundamentally should get along. And I think aliens fundamentally um, need to get in line because we're better than them. Right. And so it was a larger theme that ran all the way through the game, which, of course, then was explored in the later games with like, should the Geth and the Corians get along or should they be fighting? Right. Like it's it's a theme and good themes resonate. And that was the point. So having a character that that worked within the larger themes of the game, I think, worked really well. And I think um, the Inquisitor probably suffered the most from being kind of a tabula rasa um, because we had we had, you know, when we went to the four races, uh, there was like. You know, making Canari fit was a little bit harder because of Talvashoth was the only real way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that there were uh, there was less time spent in the background, which of course origin stories are wonderful, but also terribly expensive. Yep. Uh, so you you know you're making six openings of the game, which is six tutorials, which is six introductory and and yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of reasons to do them and a lot of reasons not to. I think they're great, and and at the same time they're also. Um, sometimes a better investment for game one than game three. But um, I, I, I guess I would counterpoint the Inquisitor, who, you know, I think did a pretty good job of living in the space of, of a leader who had the role foisted upon them uh, with Hawk, who was in a much more uh, narrow set of circumstances, which is, you know, refugee on the run who makes good. And with that, I think the, the team did a really interesting job of giving Hawk some very real and tangible character. Um, but again, Part of that, you could say, came from narrowing the bands a bit from Origins in that, um, you know, you, you didn't have the six backgrounds. Uh, you had one, but you also, because we knew what that background was, the character became easier to write for. So it's it's an interesting trade-off and one where, you know, you look at Divinity Original Sin and they went, well, we're doing these, I forget how many, five, six uh, origin style characters. They will have their own yeah. background, but they will have the shared opening. So it's kind of like, kind of like um, they had a lot more history, but they started in Ostagar to use it in DAO term, which again, I think is is great. Um, there are a lot of different ways to pull it off, and I think that you know every every game attempts to varying success. But yes, the more uh, breadth you give the player, uh, the more that becomes like a dominant part of your game, and and the more that requires budget and work and time. And and it's just a matter of is that where you want to focus? Um, and depending on the game, it might be right. For Origins, it was a perfect call because it was the start of a franchise. For Inquisition, we had a lot of fires to fight. We had to get multiplayer working. We had to get the entire game onto Frostbite. We had to redo every single piece of art. Um, we had to we had to redo combat AI and everything like that, all yeah. from the ground up. And we also had to ship on five platforms, um, which were of wildly different specs. I was going to say, when you say five platforms out loud, that sounds terrifying it it uh, so there was a producer a, a wonderful fellow named uh, chris Hentwhistle, 
who, who, who used to like laundry list the risks on the project. And he'd be like, it's, it's a bloody miracle we shipped. And I'm like, <laughs> it, it is, it is. So, um, you know, again, every Dragon Age is one that I'm, I'm exceptionally proud of, but often for very, very different reasons. Yeah. I'm, I'm Team Hawk, Dragon Age 2 all the way. I, I, you mentioned characters. I really enjoyed him. So this actually speaks to the story stuff and the characters mm. you're talking about. This is from FileMyR, at FileMyRPH. Some of these names are out there. Uh, this person <laughs> says, does Mike regret any of the story decisions the team made in Dragon Age, especially ones that limited story options later on in the series? <laughs> so I, I, I would say probably... Um I, okay, so I would say probably some of the some of the stuff in the endings of Origins, especially the epilogues, um, kind of kind of set some uh, like really wildly different um, settings for the world. Yeah. Insofar as it's like, well, the dwarves are completely closed off, or the dwarves threw their doors open, and it's like, oh, okay, that's that's a bit of a headache-inducing um, duality. Uh, and one of the things that that causes is, okay, on, on the surface, you're like, well, that'd be great. You could have two entirely different games. I'm like, indeed, but we can't afford to make those, <laughs> right? You simply can't. And, and I know, I know people will, there are many people who will yell at me because how dare you be constrained by money and time, effort and, and focus. How yeah, dare you, you monster. But, but that was my job. My job was to be constrained by time, effort, you know, and to make the best decision I could in the scenario. So those, those were, um, I would say that some of those like epilogues, for instance, were written with less of an eye towards like there being future games and stuff like that. And they, they, they created kind of this vortex where it was like, woof, that might be unsupportable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of thing where, you know, in later games or novels or something, you can kind of bring things back together. And I, I know there are people who are like purist RPG fans who think that I am speaking the deepest of heresy right now. But again, there's a balance between what you want to respond to, what you want to carry forward, what kind of story stuff you want to develop and what, um, what you realistically or reasonably, to use lawyer speak, can afford <laughs> to sustain in the future. Because I'd rather disappoint people that there wasn't, you know, quite as much variety as they hoped, um, but put it in like two or three really specific places, uh, and, and say, cool, but we, that's a promise we can live up to, than to go like, look, we exploded everything, but anyway, we're going to ignore that, right? It's sort of like, um, you know, I, I love the, I love the Soul Reaver series, but it was a bit disappointing that only one of the two Legacy of Cain, you know, the original Blood Omen, um, endings was honored at all, right? And it's yeah. like, okay, that's, that's mildly disappointing. I wasn't upset, but it is what it is, and they made a decision. So my thinking is that, um, you know, generally speaking, the ones I regret are the ones that put forward a promise that there was no chance of fulfilling. I know there are people who probably were looking to see like, you know, well, you, you brought this up and you haven't resolved it. And I'm like, well, A, that's no longer my problem. Uh, but B, it's the kind of thing where, uh, and I, I, th- I may have even told you this before, my approach to storytelling um, and really the whole team's approach in the Dragon Age games was to treat it like a DM who never wanted their campaign to end. Yep. Um, you know, in IP development, you call that evergreen, right? Nothing ever gets rid of the dark side of the force. People are always going to be tempted by it. Um, but you want to, you want to leave story hooks out there for you to pick up later and dust off and go, Ooh, that could be interesting. Uh, let's run with that. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and sometimes you have writers who are unstoppable and continue to, to arc, 
the Red Jenny thread through every game because <laughs> it makes them chuckle and they want to <laughs> do stuff with it. Yeah, that sustainability has to be a difficult balance because you do want after someone sees the credits for your game to feel like, oh man, I, I'm satisfied. I really enjoyed that. I'm not sitting there like you want more, but you don't need it. I, I'm not going to spoil the newest Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. but it was one of my favorites in terms of it really, it closed a lot of loops. It really f- solved a lot of things that you'd normally think like, oh, I'm shocked they weren't going to save this for the ninth movie. Like, oh my God, this just happened. And I really thought yeah. this would be a continuing thread all the way in. To a point where there's so much they can explore afterward. And you just mentioned, like, someone could always go to the dark side. So there's still that feeling with a lot of things and, like, where will this go? But there's also this satisfied feeling of, you know, if this ended with eight, I wouldn't be upset. Like, I would Mm. actually feel like I got what I needed out of these characters without them overstaying their welcome. And I would still want to know more. You'd almost want, like, a DLC pack. But, like, there's there's still enough there that you feel fine with it. And I would just assume, in general, when you're creating these massive worlds like Dragon Age, you're always balancing is this enough and should we leave even more obvious threads for a sequel or is that just going to frustrate players? Yeah. And it, it's honestly, it varies by player. I think there, there are some calls that are obviously like, okay, yeah, that will just frustrate people. Um, others are, others are like, well, you closed that thread off and I wasn't satisfied with it. Yeah. Um, that isn't what I wanted. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, that was unsatisfying in a fundamental level. Sometimes it's, that was unsatisfying because it wasn't what I hoped for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so on. But I think, I think, you know, again, you, 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 you do the best you can with what you have. I mean, this stuff is all discussed and you often recognize that like, there is no perfect answer. So you kind of, at some point you go with, uh, to my mind, what excites the creators? If, if there is no clear right answer for the fans, which again, usually there is. And usually you strive for that, but sometimes it's like the right answer to the fans isn't to give them what they want. It's to give them what they need. You know, yeah. uh, it's like you need a little bit of frustration here. You need to be, and I mean, to go to Last Jedi, it's like you need to be surprised a bit. Yeah. Um, because you think, <laughs> I think for me, the thing that, uh, that makes me chuckle and I won't spoil it, but is, is that the number of people who are like, ugh. Uh, Force Awakens was just a new hope again. And then they were like, oh, how dare The Last Jedi be so unpredictable? <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's, that's crap. Because like, I, well, I was one of the former where I was like, it's just four again. That's why I love The Last Jedi. But then I don't understand the people who, like you mentioned, had that first reaction. They're like, now this is too different. I want yeah. more of the same. How are dare this sure surprise me? Yes. So, but, you know, again, that's, that's the thing, tastes and, and stuff. And I think, you know, you could, you could argue all day to blue in the face about, well, maybe the execution wasn't perfect. And when you take those kind of risks, you, I, I actually think this is true. I think when you take the kind of risk that you take, um, there, I think you have to, you have to, you have to be ready to deliver at Mass Effect 2 level of quality. Mass Effect 2 took enormous risks with the franchise, yep. but it's beloved because the level of execution and polish was, absolutely well done absolutely well done and while yeah there are people who complain about the overall kind of arc of the um the main plot the overall character design the tightening of the gameplay like there was so much about that game that was exceptional that i think it kind of blew through the risk and even some of the weaker spot again that's the point where plot was less important than character right Absolutely. yeah no i totally agree when you do take risks sometimes you need to hit on more things than Safer stuff. Do you want to make duck a l'orange, which could burn in an instant, <laughs> or do you want to make pizza, where even if it's not that good, it's still pizza? Exactly. Right. So it's kind of like high risk, low risk. Um, there's a bigger payoff, but much bigger risk, and and creatively, that I think fits. Yeah, 
Sometimes pizza is great. Like right now, I yeah. love some pizza. Uh, this person, I almost had their question first just for their name alone. This is from Fat Bastard at Fat Bastard thirty four. Right. Uh, Fat Bastard would like to know. I would love to hear Mike's take on EA stance that linear games are dead. As someone mm. who really enjoys Dragon Age and Mass Effect, this concerns me greatly. And I think we can kind of take this more toward the conversation of there's this certain sentiment between big publishers that it's hard because of the triple A price point for making a game for making something that you're actually trying to hit five, eight, 10 million sales, they think you need these certain multiplayer hooks or these certain aspects of it that go beyond just being a single player linear game. And as someone like you, who's worked on Dragon Age, which is this big open world RPG, mostly for one player, what's kind of your thought on where is this going? Can there be big triple A single player linear games that make money and are sustainable? Right. So, uh- Whenever, whenever anyone says anything is dead in video games, um, it would behoove you to find a industrial and or cattle sized salt lick and take a big old pull on it. <laughs> um, it's never dead. Nothing is ever dead. Um, what, what's happening right now is there, there is, okay. So yes, we have, we have the AAA price point, um, where the cost of the games at retail and the overall cost of games, yes, they've gone up. But not a lot. They have not gone up a lot. Meanwhile, the team sizes and everything have ballooned by a factor of the budgets are, you know, hundreds yeah. of times what they were. They're they're enormous. Uh, there are, there are thousands of people pouring their hearts into every Assassin's Creed, right? And those people are all paid a salary, and they all need computers, and they all need you know <laughs> whatever carbonated beverage gets them through the day, and <laughs> and or coffee. You know, like it just it costs money to make stuff, and so. I would not say that linear story-based games are dead. What I would say is that linear story-based games are expensive and rendering games in the current, um, in the current triple A kind of quality bar is expensive. Whereas rendering like, um, so, so taking something like a, uh, a Warframe level, which uses kind of modular piece together stuff or Diablo or, um, you know, Battlefront where it's like, these are perfectly beautiful arenas, but they're used thousands of times per player. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's like, cool, I'm going to do Battle of Jakku again or, or what have you. Um, when you think about the cost per, let's call it hour of engagement, hour of time that I spend involved with this game, uh, is significantly lower than it is for one hour of The Last of Us or yeah. Dragon Age, right? It's like the, the Last of Us is a remarkably expensive thing to build. And it was, you know, not open world. It was a fairly small cast, but it was, you know, rendered at such, you know, a, a absolutely pristine and beautiful fidelity that it's, that it, it leaves an emotional and resonant impact. So when you think about, um, you know, like like uh, declaring that it's dead. It's like, okay, what I would say is that the current model of production of linear story-heavy games is probably unsustainable at the current fidelity demanded by AAA. Mm. To say that all linear games are dead is ridiculous because it, that presupposes they must also all be at AAA, right? Yeah. Now, maybe that's a goal for EA. Maybe that's a goal for Ubisoft. That like, we only we only live in this stratosphere of visual fidelity and engine technology and so on. <clears throat> and, you know, speaking from experience, like Frostbite does not down res very well. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do a braid in um, Frostbite. Mm. 
for instance. You just, you just wouldn't. There is better tech to do that more efficiently and more, more effectively. But there are very few pieces of tech that can do a battlefront. So, um, but when you look at, you know, the work Wajidai is doing with their, their adventure games, like Techno Babylon is one of the, one of the best things I've played in a long time and an amazing story with amazing characters. And it would take, well, I think I'm not sure, but it was like James Dearden and a small group of people. (laughs) I don't even know if there were others. I assume there were, but it was like, it, it was a small team, right? And again, this is the thing I keep getting, um, you know, exposed to as I play uh, the indie games, right? You know, and play uh, Papers, Please. Again, that's a pretty linear story with choice told through a very, very, you know, rudimentary, but deliberately rudimentary, deliberately frustrating interface. So yeah, it's not dead. Nothing is dead. What I think we will see is that um, there is a natural kind of ebb and flow in terms of overall um, fidelity versus efficiency where there can be occasional um, almost quantum leaps in visual fidelity. And I mean, you know, not, not to tout EA too hard here, but like Battlefront is gorgeous. Like that really is, is a pretty, pretty game. And the cost of making those levels are really, really high. But once you, once you kind of settle into, okay, this is good enough. This is what this engine tech is able to develop. Then technology tends to naturally move to, okay, yeah, we built one car, but what would it take to build a thousand cars? Right. <laughs> and you end up with something that's more like an assembly line where it's like, okay, we haven't just um, – and I don't mean like, oh, we've automated and we've replaced people. It's more like we found a way to help people work a lot faster, to be more efficient. We've developed a larger library of assets that are more easily shared. Here is a rusty texture. You can use it anywhere. You probably want to tweak it to make it match your own art style, but away you go. So there are things to make stuff more efficient. Um, and to my mind, that's that's probably the next big thing for um, like a triple A – style game like in terms of its overall visual fidelity to come down in cost and come down in price so that it doesn't need to sell billions of units just to be um successful and it doesn't need you know years and years and years of engagement um in order to do that and i think i think the other thing for me sorry long answer but i figured this one's a this is a chewy one the other thing for me is that publishers um and honestly, you, you you need only look at um, uh, what Atlas did, and you know, to their credit, they rolled it back. But when they initially rolled out Persona Five, they were like, "Okay, streamers, you can only play the first month in game calendar time, and then you have to stop, or we will do a cease and desist and like shut down your channel." And it's like, <laughs> you don't want people to play your game, but the 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 real the, the you know, their stated thing was well it's spoilers and I'm like I don't think so I think there's a people fear people don't understand the internet well and but there's a fear that if we have a game where the, the core proposition is that it has a story if people are able to just sit back and watch it they won't play it mm-hmm. and they won't buy it and it will hurt sales and I again speaking as someone who's been living and breathing on Twitch the number of times I've played linear games people have been like oh man I'm gonna go buy this because they watched a stream of it yeah right. People rarely have time to invest 80 to 90 hours in watching a stream. And if they did, okay, you know, they probably weren't going to buy the game anyway. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, the only reason I feel like Deadly Premonition caught on the way it did is because of certain videos of it came out where people were like, have you seen this thing? Like Giant Bomb. The only reason I bought Deadly Premonition is because I saw those videos. Yeah. And I think it it has a net positive effect, but there is – um, I think there is a fear. And again, I'm not speaking in terms of like, I have great insight into publishing organizations, <laughs> but I think that there is a bit of a worry that, um, you know, you see 
games with with linear stories, if they are big on Twitch, they're only big for a while, so they clearly don't have mind share, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, they don't have um, easily fortifiable like revenue streams, like hey, we added new stuff and new packs and new platinum premium currency and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so they're just harder to wrap your head around, and the profit margins are potentially smaller, and yeah. yet. They still resonate and there's still a hunger for them. So if you can bring down the cost of creation, I think they become, once again, just as profitable as they've always been. And I do think that what we're about to see is, if we aren't already, is an oversaturation of the games that are what I call session play games, like um, anything multiplayer, right? You know, or PUBG or what have you is like, after a while, people people can only really mind share, I would say, two or three of those before they're like, okay, I... I either need to learn this at a level of mastery or I'm bored and I'm moving on. Right. Yeah. Uh, and if they're still playing, wow, that's one slot gone. Um, or me, I'm Final Fantasy 14. I have time to do my dailies there for about an hour. And then I'm like, okay, what else am I going to play? Uh, you know, but that's just it. Like it's a time thing. Whereas a story, you can kind of fire up and go, you know what? I'm going to put everything else on pause for a bit and I'm going to tear into this for a week and then I'm going to move on. So I don't know. There's a, it's a very complicated thing, but uh, anyways, nothing's dead. Get a salt lick. <laughs> yeah and the the real time investment games like a world of warcraft or like a destiny for me it's i don't play anything really competitive other than overwatch like overwatch mm-hmm. is this full dedication with me and a group of three friends and we just we're learning these characters like hundreds of hours in certain characters because mm-hmm. it's like a mastery almost like a sport that you have to hone your shot in basketball you have to hone your roadhog in overwatch and there's only so many <laughs> slots that you have open for this and for me everything else i play i'm playing evil within two because it's just here's this 15 to 20 hour story that i do when i'm not playing overwatch or just games like that so I do think there's certain slots. You also mentioned uh, Watch It Eye before, and Dave Gilbert, he's been on the podcast before, a great guy. He's He does have it almost down to a science now. I know at the start, he just, when he was describing how it all came together, was just, you know, I started to make games, then started to expand, it started to work, and now he kind of has this pipeline of creators who make really interesting um, small budget but big scale adventure games, and he brings people in, they work in a certain style, he makes his own games, and I do think there's there's a future and stuff like that. And we talked before about uh, Hellblade with Ninja Theory, where they mm-hmm. can kind of, it's a very specific case that I don't think is easily easy to replicate in a lot of different companies. But that also worked at a certain scale that didn't seem like it broke the bank. And in the end, now they're profitable way earlier than they thought they're going to be. Uh, one thing, just curious, based on what you've heard, do you think there's ever going to be a point where we're just going to have to have 70 or $80 single player linear games? Because instead of just doing the, we're going to monetize the hell out of this, people can just say, all right, $80 up front, here's The Last of Us 2. Is that something that might work? Well, I mean, speaking as someone who lives in Canada, it's it's already here. We have seen the future because oh, um, okay. of currency. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think... Um, I, I would not be surprised. I, I think essentially what you're going to see, to my mind, is that if that's going to happen, and I'm not going to say it is, but I, th- I think it's kind of inevitable, like the, 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 the industry has been so resistant to inflation, um, is that you need someone big and someone desirable uh, to come along and say like, yeah, hey, everyone, we know, we know, we know <laughs> this is kind of a bummer. But it was this or we jam a bunch of DLC in or something, right? Like they're going to have some sort of like some sort of frank discussion with the fans, which probably some people won't like. But I do think that there'll be a point where something tips. And I mean, so for instance, um, when I think about moments where something tipped, 
um, Valve coming along going, yeah, we get it. We get it. You don't want to install this thing called Steam, but you <laughs> want to play Half-Life 2. Yeah. Just trust us. And I'm like, hey, okay. I don't know if we necessarily should be trusting Steam with everything forever. And they're, they're a lovely group of people at Valve, but, you know, it's kind of like there's there's a – there's a lot happening on Steam, right? They, they take a pretty big share uh, and have an enormous platform. But I mean, a big moment was when Half-Life 2 was like, this needs Steam to go. And that was like mind-blowing DRM, oh my lord. But it tipped things because it was a big enough thing to kind of move um, move things around, right? And to change yeah. the way people did it. And what Valve did is they made a bet on the idea that um, a distribution platform with an inherent value add for them of, well, okay, this is a great way to do copy protection, frankly, because you have an account and you tie it through, could still be something people could get behind because it does offer convenience through broadband, right? Which, yeah. which it did. That's what iTunes did as well. And, and it was, it was part of a, a surge that was happening. To my mind as well, um, you know, Skyrim, coming along and saying, we are coming out on 11.11.11 worldwide. No, we're not worrying about whether Europe normally comes out on Tuesdays instead of Fridays or or what have you, right? Actually, sorry, I think it's opposite Europe's Friday. And mm. Anyway, um, but they basically said, we're coming out this day worldwide because we're, we're big and we can do that. And um, that's created, you know, kind of a, a – that it's open to space for that to be a thing. But again, it takes something the size of Skyrim for, for that to happen. Um so yeah, I think I think ultimately, um, in terms of like, hey, the price point's going to move, or the price point's going to move, but here is a here's a realistic value and purpose behind it, um, and and I think I think it would be a tough discussion, maybe a tough pill for people to swallow, um, which is which is why I think you know the better avenue for game companies is to pursue can we make it cheaper instead of can we charge more but i think over time it's just going to become a thing where where people i think increasingly understand that it's like well you can get the post release content or we can bundle more in and so on i think where there where there's going to be a problem is do people trust that there won't then be post release content after the exactly. 10 dollars <laughs> it has to be some compromise and almost an agreement yeah. between people who are buying and people who are creating of yeah. If we do this, we're not going to upsell you on a whole bunch of stuff along with this seventy or eighty dollars price point, and it's it's yep. hard to have that trust. Um, but maybe we'll we will reach a breaking point where just the consumers are going to be like, we don't want any more loot boxes. We're sick of this, and sure. then you can yeah. almost reach this middle ground. Uh, this question is much more Dragon Age focused. This person, sure. uh, Brian McGee at Briscoe Brasse, wants to know what was the internal response to the leave the fucking hinterlands meme. <laughs> So we knew about it um, before anyone else. Frankly, yeah. uh, we knew we knew that it was a place where even era playtests, um, people would get stalled, they get run down, and uh, we did put some stuff in before launch that was designed to kind of nudge you back and, and send you back uh, a lot of the um, you know updating the quest to push you forward to be like you should go back to Skyhold and stuff um, was was an element to attempt to achieve that. But, but essentially, um, you know, if I could go back and redo anything in the game, um, I think that the hinterlands, uh, needed to be, um, and, and, you know, props to the folks that worked on winter three, because they nailed it with white orchard. It, it needed to be a microcosm of the open world. And it needed to better understand that if people are presented with a large block of stuff, uh, they will want to do all that stuff because it feels optimal, even if it's completely unfun. Right. Yeah. And you could say like, you know, it's the doctor. It hurts when I move my arm like this. Well, don't move your arm like that. It's like, well, no, 
You, you need to understand player psychology. You need to understand that they're going to behave in specific ways. Um, so the hinterlands was so big and so full of you know different different content at different levels and stuff that I think a lot of people broke upon its rocky shores, as it were. Um, and uh, I, I honestly think where I see some of the most negativity of of Inquisition. Uh, it feels, and I mean, I could be completely wrong, but it feels like the locus point of it is the open worlds are empty and there's nothing of consequence, comma, in the whole game. Like, I think that's where, where it gets really bad for people is where they feel like there's no story at all. Once I get to the Interlands, there's nothing. Yeah. Um, and if you stop playing the game because you're bored in the Hinterlands, that is the game. That is what happened. There is no other story. You get this, you know, cinematic opening, and then it's just open world and it's crap. Uh, if you play the game where you try to get the minimum amount of power necessary and then do story, it actually becomes quite a quite a tight, um, fairly cinematic experience by comparison. Uh, so, but most people fell somewhere in the middle and often churned out at a point which they they real they were getting bored or in which they disagreed with the mechanic or choice or whatever. But I think you know with something like White Orchard. What it does is it creates um, a value proposition of everything you're going to see in the main game. It's just that it's a self-contained um, pause that until you kind of get past the Griffin, get past the Nilfgaardians, see the Emperor. Like you have this enormous schwack of, of stuff that's like a monster hunt, a witcher contract, fist fighting, um, what else? Horse. Uh, and so on. And what they also do is they, they use Vesemir, who disappears right after that part. They use Vesemir to make sure that there is kind of a um, character to introduce you to all the core precepts of the game. There was a war. You're a witcher and we charge money to do the job. Um, you care about Yennefer because this old guy seems to be following you out of the comfort of his home <laughs> in order to help <laughs> you find her. Like So all this stuff establishes the core themes of the game, the core uh, story arcs of the game, which are explored in numerous different ways. Uh, and then it gives you a microcosm to play in. But then before it throws you into Velen, which is absolutely staggeringly enormous and where I think people could churn out. They still have had a really good taste of story, um, open world, more intense story, stakes are raised, wild hunts, bigger deal. Oh man, I care about Siri and about Yennefer now. And I'm into the open world, but at least I have a really good vector driving me forward. I have an incredible momentum. And so, yeah, it takes a break, but then of course they, they also worked more of the open world stuff into into heavy story beats um like going through the caves with um i forget her name the blonde sorceress where you find the elven guy and you're like okay who's he and then you go to the village and there's the wild hunt and and so they did a really good job of that um so yeah uh i think the get out of the hinterlands meme was a fantastic bit of public service done by our fans and i appreciate it immensely <laughs> you mentioned the witcher 3 a lot and i i elusive dude on twitter at elusive dude had a bunch of great questions some of them kind of overlap with what we mentioned before but mm -hmm. one thing he mentions that relates to that he wants to know is it important for developers to play to the competition to maybe look at what else is going on i assume the witcher 3 made a lot of people who were making open world rpgs turn their head and look and be like whoa what is going on here how did they pull this aspect off and this aspect off when you are mid-development i'm guessing you're not restarting suddenly when a major rpg comes out but how much are you looking at what else is out there and what maybe you can do better what you might be able to lift from that and just certain aspects of what else is going on in the world well, I, I, you, 
you cannot exist in a vacuum. Um, I think if you're, if you're building something like if you're, if you're like cutting edge tech, like you're building for VR, not now, but like two years ago or something where it's like, okay, we're going to be a VR launch title. You're running, you're running blind. And frankly, I think that that is, that is that the real dark souls began there. Um, <laughs> that is, that is incredibly difficult to do. And it's incredibly hard to go, okay, is this good? We have no sense of what good usability metrics are. What makes nausea happen? We don't know. We're figuring it out. Right. And yeah. you have like maybe 10 groups simultaneously figuring that out. And then the first wave comes out. Someone gets it slightly better. Um, you know, or someone makes halo and suddenly shooter controls feel good on consoles. Uh, and you go, oh, like that. Okay, cool. Um, and it becomes a shorthand where not only are you doing yourself a service by saying, okay, that's really good. We can maybe refine from that new watermark. You're also uh, doing the players a service by saying, look, if you know how to play Halo, you know how to play our game. You know how to play Killzone or whatever because it's familiar. It's very similar. The feel is good because pulling a trigger is pulling a trigger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, if you're if you're looking if you're building an RPG and you're not paying attention to Divinity Original Sin, uh, Pillars of Eternity, which I guess too Deadfire is coming out very soon, um, and well, there's there's countless others, but like yeah. definitely Witcher Three, you just you're just missing what could be an incredible piece of inspiration. And I don't think anybody's going to go out there and recreate The Witcher. I mean, there might be a knockoff game called The Witcher or something that's like you know you play. <laughs> Gerald, um, but like, I would play that game. I'm already yeah, in. probably. It's it, like I spotted one on I tweeted about on Steam that was called like "You Want That Chicken," and I'm like, wow, this is the most <laughs> obvious PUBG clone I've ever seen. Um, but I think it was called that anyway. Whatever. If not, that game is about to be made. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so the uh, um, uh, but the, but the big thing is, yeah, you always are playing other games. You're always having a look. Um, if you have industry buddies, you're, you're always kind of, you know, chewing on games and stuff when you chat, you're like, are you playing this? What did you think about that? Like, because I'll find, you know, gameplay designers have a completely different take on say Dark Souls than like my writing team, right? They might both be playing it, but like if my writer's playing Dark Souls, yes, they'll talk about the mechanics, but they'll also go like super deep into what the implications of item descriptions had on the lore and what Mm -hmm. effective style of storytelling that did. Meanwhile, my, you know, um, a gameplay designer would be sitting there going, well, let's talk about poison and its impact on iframes. You mentioned VR before in the early days of that. It's as someone who my team worked on a PSVR launch title. And I remember we were demoing. I wasn't there. I was still in Jacksonville, but I had part of the team in E3 demoing the game. And it was demoing right next to Resident Evil 7, which was also Mm. one of like the early PSVR games. And just chatting back and forth with people from my team talking about like all right here's how they're comparing this this and this both are horror games in first person on vr which is just as you would assume for a launch title it takes a while to make sure like okay what works here you do a whole bunch of stuff and you play test but until it's out at a wide audience what causes nausea what is the right way to handle the movement because you know your body is stationary but in the game you're moving how is that disconnect going to happen in your brain and just hearing the comparing and contrasting, even in that one instance at E3 during those few days, was incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like yeah. you need to look at what's out there and what they're doing, and maybe one person borrows from the other, and it's 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 fascinating in that way. Uh, we 
two questions that were somewhat related, so I'll kind of combine them in one. There's a Todrazok, I pronounced that perfectly, I promise, and from Massimo Valkanover at Valks Massimo. Uh, you mentioned before how what's really important in games in general, and especially in Dragon Age games, is this, this idea of character and caring about the person um, beyond gameplay, beyond world. So this person wants to know, and maybe that is your answer, which feature aspect of each Dragon Age makes you the most proud? So Maybe we're not going to go into each Dragon Age individually because then we'll be here for three hours. But mm. maybe kind of summing everything up, looking at Dragon Age, do you have a single aspect of those games? They're like, man, we nailed that. Like that was maybe the best thing that came out of those games. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, um, um, we made people feel like they could be a hero. Yeah. Right. No matter who you were, no matter where you came from, no matter what bullshit was going on in your life. <laughs> Dragon Age meant you, I think, what it meant for a lot of people was, I can be a hero, I can succeed, and these people have my back, right? Yeah. Uh, these characters are here with me through, not not universally, but generally through thick and thin. Um, and I think the thing that's always resonated with me as kind of a, a you know, as a game developer but mostly as it, kind of my role as being sort of a face guy for Dragon Age is the moments when people uh, would come up to me at like a PAX or uh, PAX was big for this was really big because it's such a fan focused convention. But you get E3, you get you get um, even journalists on occasion would, would break the, the, the mystique and they would be like, I want, I want to tell you a story about this time when I was playing Dragon Age and the number of times where people were <sighs> – Gosh, like it gave me the courage to come up to my parents. It um, helped me uh, through uh, my cancer treatments. It helped me through the death of my brother or my dad or um, God, I, uh, you name it. I have easily over a hundred of these. I still have a, a patch from a, a fellow from one of the one of the infantry divisions in the U.S. Army mm. who said, you know, and he was more talking about, um, this is actually before Origins, so he was talking about Jade Empire. He said, I used to play that game just in sequence. I'd finish it and I'd start it again because it was one of the few games we had in station when we were in Afghanistan. And it kept us sane because it wasn't a brown shithole where people were trying to kill us. It was, and not, not to say Afghanistan's a shithole, just the, the guy's situation was that. Um, but it was... It was a thing that helped us stay sane and feel like the good guys could win and like, you know, that the people would trust us and stuff. And I'm just like, I get it, man. And then he came back. He told me this story and he came back the next day and gave me like his units patch and said, here, I want you to have this just to say thanks for getting us through that. And so when I think about that, I think that that creating those characters who would accept you or would talk to you or would question you, but then kind of understand or listen, who made you feel like you were a person, even if you were like you know, um, whatever, an elf who's supposed to be despised in the, in the Dragon Age universe. These people saw your value despite that, right? Um, people learned that you could take over the Great Wardens and lead them to victory despite that. And maybe you die in the process and they would say very nice things about you. Like uh, that element of um, making you feel like a hero who had friends and had support, I think, was a thing that the writing team consistently delivered on, the character artist consistently delivered on, the cinematics team consistently delivered on, the localization team consistently delivered on, the voice actors consistently. Like, it just went through everything was, we want you to feel like you are supported in this grand adventure. And knowing that that was the thing we needed to nail 
made it so much easier to nail it because we could prioritize accordingly. And so I, I just feel like throughout DA, um, the thing I'm proud of is the number of people who can come to me and say, this meant so much. Yeah, that's those stories are awesome. That's incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, even like I've mentioned this before on this podcast, even smaller scale when I get messages from people being like, hey, I listened to a freelancer or someone on your show and now I'm, I, I got my first thing published or I'm just starting to write. Like even on a small scale, that's the kind of stuff where you're like, wow, this this is probably the most rewarding cool thing to hear it doesn't mm-hmm. with a game like yeah if you get like a 90 metacritic that's awesome or if this one action scene is really cool you'll remember that but i would assume it's those personal stories it's those people who say hey this helped me like this personally got me through something where you're like that's yeah. holy shit i didn't even think i had the not power but the ability to do that with this creative work but yeah you know when you're when you're locked in these long development cycles you maybe you're only talking to the team about that kind of stuff and you, not a thankless job but you don't know how much of an impact that you're going to have but when you do that probably changes everything mm. um so this is a really good question um this is from matt girasoni at Arumentis, uh, I know stuff about Dragon Age 4 might still be under NDA. It is, of course. Uh, but I was wondering if Mike got a chance to work with Alexis Kennedy, known for Sunless Sea and actually a former 1099 guest, uh, since I read a story about him being involved in some capacity in the new Dragon Age. How does the process of finding freelance writers look like? <laughs> okay. So um, not only did I, did I get to work with Alexis, um, I was I think I was the second person to DM him and go, hey, what's up? <laughs> I slid into slid his into DMs, DMs in in a most professional way. No, we we've been buds for for a long time. Um, the the crew at uh, Fail Better worked with us on the Last Court, which was kind of a a web based game you could play as part of the Dragon Age Keep. And uh, so we we go back. Um, I'm a big fan of Fallen London. I love Sun of the Sea. Uh, I back Cult of Simulator. In fact, I was there. He did a live stream where um, he cut. Uh, I forget what it was. It was it's one of one of the cults, uh, or one of the symbols of the cults. I'm sorry. It's, it, it's a deep mythos that I don't fully understand and look forward <laughs> to learning. Uh, but he cut a cake that had been like filled with jelly, like it was full of brains and stuff. It was amazing. Um, so he, uh, he had me over at his house there. So I, I didn't just work with him in the Dragon Age side. I actually was there during a cultist simulator cake cutting. So I feel like I contributed pretty heavily to that project. I hope there's a credit. Um, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> I'm kidding. But anyway, so yeah, uh, I worked with them in terms of uh, uh, freelance writers. So it's a it's a fairly rare position to show up uh, at Bioware. Um, in his case, he what I was looking for with him was was someone who could bring his kind of specific kind of tone and level of experience. Um, but Bioware tends to work mostly with writers that are. Uh, in-house because the tools and uh, techniques for the nonlinear storytelling are pretty specific. Um, and it's not like you just put together a thing in final draft and then we just, we make magic happen. It's like, no, we build very specific sets of conditionals and uh, coding and that kind of stuff. And a lot of that requires very specific training or a ton of extra work. And I'd rather bring a writer in and have them like learn that and kind of get the fundamentals down and be able to get the level of peer review that we can do uh, sorry, we, they could do, um, kind of by, by, by sitting in a group and by working together directly. Cause we had, um, a largely part in part, thanks to Patrick Weeks, who brought over a lot of lessons he learned from Clarion West. Um, we could, we did some pretty intense peer review processes and that kind of stuff. So, um, 
That said, though, there are a lot of projects that don't have kind of full-time staff writers and, and they don't have kind of the, the, the bench strength that Bioware was able to have. And they don't have the same demands in terms of tools and tech. And you need Perforce to be able to do check-ins for a remote, uh, you know, VPN connection that you've got set up through a tunnel and blah. Mm. And instead, um, they're looking for people who can put together kind of more linear scripts and that kind of thing. Um, what, what you find there is a lot of that does come down to a bit of your name being known, a bit of networking, a bit, uh, a lot, in fact, I would say, of knowing other game writers and not being the skeezy, hey, you got a job for me, got a job for me, got a job for me, but instead trying to engage with them directly on Twitter. The number of times where I've um, had moments where I've been like, hey, you know, I, 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 I can't do this, obviously, I, I was busy at the time, or... Um, I don't think this would be to my strengths, but you know what? I know some people I could ask or I could ask some people if they know people I could ask. There is kind of this network of people who are kind of games writing professionals um, who are who can be very, very helpful and really um, good for that. And I think the thing I would look for is look for people who currently are writing games. Um, you know, take a look at their Twitter Take a look if they ever offer like an opportunity for feedback or if they're like, hey, my DMs are open if you want to ask me questions, that kind of stuff. Um and that kind of thing can be can be probably the best way to start that kind of networking. Or if you get a chance to attend a local IGDA and see if anyone knows anyone who's doing game writing. But I think a lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of it is reputation. A lot of it is, um, oh, hey, I see you're into writing and I saw that Twine game you did or I saw that work you did on this thing, even if it was just your own self-publish. Uh, a lot of that can help people catch attention. It can act almost like a living resume. Yeah, I did a Q&A show not too long ago where someone directly asked, like, how do I network? Because everyone says that, you know, just go network. And he has no idea how to do that. And the first thing I'd mentioned was what you'd said, which is like, just don't randomly ask people for jobs. Like, that's not networking. That's not, no. you're not a human if you're going out and being like, hey, I need a job. Can I have a job? I'm good at this. I have a job. Like, it shouldn't really feel that gross. <laughs> like, yeah. you can just yeah. be, be a person and talk to other people. And maybe eventually they'll remember you and it might, something might happen. But yeah, and I, I think, I think one thing is, is consider, you know, being clear that you're like, Hey, look, I'm really new at this. I'm not a games writing professional or I am, I've done this thing. Uh, I'm currently looking for work, but I'm actually just hoping I could maybe ask you a few questions or, or whatever. Yeah. But I think that the, the the fundamental way to approach that kind of networking is to say, in, you know, know in your heart of hearts that you respect their time and that, that, you know, this other person has probably got other work they're doing. They probably got other people asking questions and you just like, look, you know, if there's anything you could do to help me out or any advice you could offer, I'd love to hear it. But I don't want to be a burden. If now's a bad time, let me know. Um, but I, I think it's okay to say, yeah, I'm currently looking for a job. But that's not what this discussion is. This discussion yeah. is actually me looking for some advice or if you ever had time for feedback or if you ever wanted to take a look at a thing, that would be awesome and so on. Especially if you're someone who's just trying to get into this and like you said, hasn't written a game before, or hasn't mm -hmm. written for a game mm -hmm. before where it's like, hey, this is kind of my dream, but what advice can you give me as someone who's done this before? Who's yeah. been there, done that, tell me how this works, tell me how to do stuff like, or not tell me, you're not, you're not demanding this, but could you tell me, or if you have time, it's usually the best way to handle it. Uh, we have a few emails I want to go over, uh, some really good ones here. This one is from uh, Christian Neeson. 
Uh, he mm-hmm. says, hello, Josiah and Mike. Really looking forward to the episode. The Dragon Age and Bioware RPGs in general are some of my favorites. So I'd like to thank Mike for making my life just a tiny bit better. So, mm-hmm. Very nice thing from Christian. I, so he has multiple questions. Uh, let's start with this one. Last year, we saw the release of Divinity Original Sin 2, an absolutely massive CRPG filled with great writing, voice acting, gameplay, and world building. In many ways, it felt just as epic and wonderful as Dragon Age Origins, yet it was made on a much smaller budget. And this is kind of what we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, the CRPG genre has made uh, has really made a comeback in recent years through crowdfunding and smaller team efforts. Does this inspire you? Do you see stuff like this and you know maybe want to get involved in crowdfunding and smaller efforts like that? Uh, so yeah, like the, 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 the Vandy team, I think made some really good choices where what they said was, you know what, we are not aiming at triple a, you know, third person or first person, um, beautifully. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely game, but it's not like a lovely game in first person where you can get, you know, your eyeball, your virtual eyeball right up to a brick. They said, we're going to do a fixed perspective. We're going to, you know, kind of live in isometric land. We're going to use turn-based combat, which, you know, so a number of the, all of those decisions, um, basically change the parameters of the fidelity of the presentation, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't make it worse. They make it different. That's a yeah. really interesting way to think about it is that it doesn't mean that it's worse. It might be harder to sell to someone who hasn't played a CRPG before, but I don't think they're building Divinity Original Sin for people who hadn't played CRPGs before. I think, I think that word of mouth caused it to actually have a bit of a gravitational pull in, but they basically said, we want to build something that makes us feel like we're playing Ultima 6 or Ultima 7 again. That, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, the, the team well enough to know that that was their vision. But to me, the feeling of being able to pick up and move boxes and loot everything, and even some of the UI elements made me, just took me right back to my ultimate days. I'm like, oh, this is glorious. And by doing that, what they were able to do is say, okay, cool. Turn-based removes some of our animation requirements, and top-down means that we don't have to kind of be able to render uh, in this style. It also better opens up, you know, a, a more high scale tactical combat that puts us more in a space like Fire Emblem and that kind of stuff. That's cool. Let's, yeah. let's steer into those curves and own those strengths and really just nail down that space. Um, so I think that, that again, it was a brilliant game that knew exactly what it wanted to be. And when a game has a clear vision and a clear direction where they're like multi path, multiplayer, um, tons of choice, and just absolutely a crap ton of content. Well, okay, could we do all of that if we also did first person, but also third person, but also tactical, but also like, as soon as you start adding features, you can create exponential cost curves. And what I think they did is they said, no, we're not doing those things because that's not what we're trying to build. And it's not what we're trying to evoke. We're trying to be different, unique, and uh, exceptional in other spaces. So they weren't trying to compete with Battlefront. They were trying to compete with um, almost the legacy of, of, of that era of games. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it was incredibly smart decision-making um, for them to, to tackle it. And I mean, does it give me hope for CRPGs? It does because what it, what it does is it creates a broadening of um, what's available in the market. And frankly, it opens up, I think for a new generation, um, a feeling of, Oh wow, this is, this is a really neat way to have an adventure. And I'm 14 and have yeah. literally never seen this before, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, for for a lot of people, XCOM might have been their first tactical style game with yeah, a totally. grid and, and so on. And its presentation was exceptional. For others, it's the new Fire Emblems, right? You know, like, oh, wow, I've never played a game like this before. But those games have been around a long time. 
I mean, Mario and Rabbits might be that for this younger generation too. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, yeah. That's that was boy. That was a surprise. Yeah, it sure um, was. Le- Legend of Grimrock being a you know oh, dungeon yeah. keeper slash uh, wizardry slash whatever style um, first person dungeon crawler was like, oh wow, this is a thing. And it's like it's been a thing forever, but yeah, it's back into style. It's like leg warmers. Wow, those are a thing. Yeah, the eighties are back. Uh, and, and, and since have moved on again, no one does that anymore, but you know, um, point and click adventures, right. Uh, in a lot of ways, telltale games are point really well done point and click adventures. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, that's how I look at it is, is that again, I think, I think divinity is a triumph of vision, a triumph of, um, being willing to be, you know, kind of hardcore and the budget being so low was because they made smart decisions, um, and said that. We're not trying to win that race. We're trying to be, you know, we're trying to be acceptable, evocative, stylish, and recognizable. But we're not, you know, we're not going to win fidelity against an Assassin's Creed. And that's okay, because that's not the that's not the fight we're trying to have. What we're trying to do is this. We're trying to do choice and multipathing and multiplayer in a way that none of them are. So that's on the top of my shame list of games I haven't played yet, and especially since uh, my former editor at GameSpot, Kevin Van Orr, did a lot of the writing on that. So I'm like, oh, I yeah. need to. And I've never, I don't usually play games like that, but it's one of those, you know, word of mouth and just in general, the quality I've seen from it where I'm like, I can't believe I haven't played this yet. Uh, Christian has another question more related to games that you've worked on. Uh, he says, Mass Effect ostensibly ushered in the era of narrative player choice games into the mainstream to the point where even the dialogue wheel pop-ups in games to this day were in inspired by games like Mass Effect. Uh, how does it feel to work on something that ended up being so universally praised by both fellow professionals and gamers? It must be very cool to see a creative idea spread out to other developers because of how good it was. It feels good. <laughs> it feels real good. That's about the only one I can give a short answer to. I mean, yeah. the, the longer answer is that, I mean, everybody kind of looks for that. And I think in a lot of ways, like, you know, um, there's, there is this weird like desire for, um, you know, the auteur, uh, in the film terms being, you know, kind of like in the way Hitchcock, like owned every part of his direction and so on. But like, people are always looking for like, well, who, who did that? How does it feel to be part of that? And I think being part of that is an even better emotion because no one person made Mass Effect. I mean, Casey Hudson was obviously a big vision holder, but Preston Watomniak did some amazing design work and Drew Carpitian set that world up and, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but yeah, it, it feels, it feels good. It feels um, like I was exceptionally lucky to land at Bioware when I did, when when Jade Empire was in development. And I feel um, honored to have worked there. And, and I made so many good friends and so many good memories um, that it just there, – there is, there is, you know, nothing, nothing but this nice suffusion of gold when I look backwards. Uh, this one is an interesting one from Sean from Colorado. Dear Mike slash the 1099, uh, I've been playing a lot of Mass Effect and games alike where I come across moments or areas where either everything loads and works as intended or everything, well, doesn't. How mm. much uh, development goes into making characters or NPCs function on rails or like clockwork exactly the way you want them to in certain moments? Do you have any interesting, sto- interesting stories about odd things happening during <laughs> set scenes and games that you've helped develop? Oh, oh sure. Yeah. I'd assume you have a lot of those. 
Okay, so yeah, like I mean, what, what how much effort goes into it is is an enormous amount. I mean, that's the quality assurance department, the the department everyone thinks isn't that important, but oh my lord, you're doomed without them. Um, <laughs> we'll go through. I think I think we I think we broke over a hundred thousand bugs filed and fixed oh on God. Dragon Age Inquisition. Right, it was such a big game, and it was in production long enough. And we started we started doing QA exceptionally early. So there'd be stuff like game not good, game not working. Uh, you know, like there were like joke bugs we're like well we'll resolve that one when we get our metacritic um but the the big thing is you 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 have to go through and basically um pour hours and hours of effort to make even the simplest of things happen and it's funny whenever people draw comparisons to movies i i worked with a, a concept artist once who was like this isn't how we do it in the movies and i picked up a pen and i said look in the movies and i dropped the pen and it fell as pens do i said in the movies, that's free. Here, yeah. that doesn't work until that guy finally gets physics enabled. <laughs> and they ain't working yet. So things are different. And, and you know, uh, you can – it is not hard to get 100 extras to mill around in a shopping mall. It is borderline impossible to fit them in memory in a, in a video game, right? Mm. So if you ever wanted to be impressed following that red balloon in um, – in heavy rain, or if you've ever played Hitman Blood Money, trying to chase the dude in chicken suit through Mardi Gras and actually oh, yep. being able to not see him despite the fact he's wearing a chicken suit, that is <laughs> that is a feat of technical prowess, um, which was actually achieved by the crowd density being so thick that uh, in some cases their models, as soon as they left the initial laud range, level of detail range, they, their, their legs just went down to pins because there was no way you would ever be able to see them because the crowd was that thick. Amongst many, many, many other tricks. So, um, yes, tons and tons of stuff goes into into work. Um, the number of things I've seen, like we had a we had a gag reel of um, what were they, what they call him the QA team named the horse in Inquisition, Mister Butters or something. And like Mister <laughs> Butters would just like occasionally turn inside out, or his eyeballs oh, would God. just in the middle of a scene slowly start drifting out of his skull and just like quietly leave the scene um, i'm going to have nightmares yeah, about this now yeah yeah uh the, oh yeah the horse the horse had a full week where his legs were basically just like noodles and oh, so no. the horse animated perfectly fine but his legs just kind of flopped along behind it like he was like a like a stuffed enderman or something from minecraft <laughs> it was amazing um the, there was a period where we you know we had to swap in some temp models cuz we were doing a skin upgrade so everybody turned like butter yellow and it made all the romance scenes exceptionally uncomfortable oh. to watch. Um, the list goes on, right? You know, characters just quietly sliding forward so they deliver a major line with just a crotch on camera or something, or you name it. Um, it's it's all happened, uh, and and they are memorable and hilarious, and often uh, the QA team because again they work incredibly hard. They would file bugs that were deliberately like, is this intended? And you'd watch the video and just like fall down laughing. Um, Cause clearly no, but they were like, it's, it's a, I'll accept a will not fix on this one. I'm like, yeah, no, no, that's perfect. We're shipping that. That's, that's too <laughs> the bug that um, becomes a major feature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, many, many games have, have those stories. I'm, I'm not sure I can bring any to mind that are like, no, we're, we're keeping that, but certainly um, it's just a, a it's a, it's a great experience. But yeah, so much work goes into literally every moment of a game, um, and making characters move around and be lifelike and anything like that is is it's it's hard. It's hard because all the stuff you think of, like oh, you have to build the assets, like them moving and sitting and talking, and you have to record those assets in French and German and Japanese and Russian and yeah, etc. But then you are like, oh, also 
don't forget, you have to be aware that you have to fit X number of them in into the screen space and the memory space of an Xbox 360 uh, or a PS3, but also you want it to look good and look more busy on a PC. So now you have to go through and do a whole bunch of paths where it automatically calls based on platform or available memory uh, or dynamically calls based on the scene or setting or is it day or is it night or is it raining? Should they respond differently? Should they be wet? Can we afford to make them look wet? Because that's a shader on top of the texture. Ah, it just keeps just- going. Got exhausted. Yep. Hearing that. Yeah. No, the more I learn about this shit, the more it feels like magic. Or yep. it's like, how does it ever actually get done? Um, yep. We have two more emails. Uh, this one, very Dragon Age specific. This is from Darian Tabris, who says Hunger Demons were one of the five demons originally mentioned in Dragon Age Origins, along with Rage, Sloth, Desire, and Pride. Sloth also didn't get a model, but that's because they take the form of other creatures. In Awakening in Dragon Age 2, two hunger demons appeared, but they use the model for other demons, a shade and an abomination. Finally, hunger demons are mentioned during Inquisition, but don't actually show up. The question is, why are hunger demons the last kid picked for the baseball team, so to speak? <laughs> I, I, well, I, okay, if it's a baseball team, it's probably because they're a little heavy and they don't run bases so well. Um, but that's, that's size shaming, and frankly, I shouldn't even indulge those jokes. I, I would say because um, I've seen some, I've seen some people you think are heavy. They're fast. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is uh, honestly, I just think it was one of those things where um, we 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 built up the palette. We had a bunch that we were working with. The Inquisition obviously was kind of the let's go big with demons one. But it was one of those ones where it's like I know we concepted some hunger demons uh, and you know giant mouths and that kind of stuff, but they never quite lent themselves to. Um, to gameplay in the way that, uh, you know, some of the, like, you know, terror would be like, okay, cool, it causes a change in your behavior, or a rage demon lights itself on fire, like, in a way that's almost intuitive and that provides kind of um, shorthand for players to figure out how to counter and how to interact and so on and so forth. You could easily do, like, oh, it's got a big vortex kind of ability that pulls you in and that kind of stuff, and it's something you could do, but it's one where... Um, you know, for the major demons, we basically, we wanted to broaden out the demon kind of palette, as it were, with more minors, because we basically had shades and then kind of major emotions. And that's where things like the, the nightmares and stuff like that came from was the idea that, that we wanted to have more variety in demon encounters. And so at no point do we ever really get to the point where we we're looking for that kind of base, um, gluttonous kind of creature. Um, yeah. So I would say, I would say, uh, they were not, as intuitive and there wasn't like a moment where like the story was like this would be thematically perfect to have a hunger demon behind it um and you know look at it as as they're still there they're still a potential they still could be used um and if they do then i look forward to seeing what matt rhodes and nick thornborough and casper conofell and all of our Ramil, all of Ramil, uh, all of our amazing concept team will, will come up with and I, I i look forward to being surprised for once you just gave me a perfect segue to this last question. Uh, nice. So you've nice. answered a little bit of this, but I still want to read this full email. This is from Aaron Kay, and she wants to first say, uh, we know you just recently finished a long term of 14 years with Bioware, and your creative direction will definitely be missed by the fans. Uh, she says, if you could talk about it, what was the deciding factor which made you realize it was time to move on, which we talked a little bit about that before, mm. um, and where you want to go from here. So I guess we could start. Was there actually like a deciding factor, a crystallizing moment where you're just like, I need a change of scenery. No, it's, it's, so it's something, you know, I've been, I've been kind of thinking about since inquisition, um, you know, because I mean, inquisition, so by no means, so I believe it was a perfect game or like, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of my career or anything like that. Um, I do think it was an exceptionally good game. And I think we, we, we worked very hard on it. I'm very proud 
of how it came together. Um, but what do you look for at a certain point? Uh, if you start to feel a little bit like, um, you've got a bit of itchy feet or, or that kind of stuff. One of, one of the core things of like any kind of director level job in gaming is to really care. Right. Mm. And I never stopped caring about dragon age, but, but kind of like, you know, okay, I'm working with this novelist and I want, I want to get them to the point where they're really contributing. I'm working with this comics team and I really want them to, you know, after a while that can start to, that can start to pull on you a little bit. And there was a part of me that was kind of not hungry for like a new thing. Like a lot of people are like, oh, do you have a novel you want to write? And I'm like, no, no, not really. Whenever I do, I tell them a, a completely made up and ridiculous novel <laughs> plot line. Um, but the, the, what I, what I was hungry for was like, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what else is out there and what, uh, what other teams do. And I wasn't really keen to like leap straight back into like, um, triple A and like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to immediately start interviewing for jobs. Um, Instead, I was like looking to take a break, reinspect, figure out what I want to do. And I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm done making games. Um, but I did kind of feel like, okay, I feel like I got Dragon Age to a good place. I feel like it's a well-regarded part of EA staple. I think we shipped a game of the year. Um, I, I feel like maybe it's time for me to look at something new. I've been in the same studio for 14 years with largely the same team. Which is, let me tell you, a triumph and a delight because they were great folks. And then, you know, there were some opportunities in terms of what was happening with staffing and, and, you know, Anthem being kind of a core focus right now, which it should be, um, where I realized that, that if I were to go, you know, 2017 would not be a hyper disastrous time to do so. And when you get a chance to make a graceful exit, you know, with your head held high and go like, cool, I think this won't screw over my team. It won't make people's lives harder. You, you can, you strongly consider taking it. And that's, that's largely where I, I found myself and going, you know, this is, this is kind of an opportunity and it's a scary opportunity, but am I too comfortable right now? Maybe, maybe. I mean, there's still lots of cool challenges, but at the same time, maybe I should take a leap while I have a chance. Yeah. And that plays right into the last part of Aaron's question, which is that being said, do you feel confident in the current team to do right by the legacy of the franchise that you mm. helped create? Yeah, I mean, a lot, the, the the bones are still there, right? Um, you know, Matt Goldman's still still there with the the team. Mark Dara, of course, has been absolutely central to setting our direction since you know the last two years of Origins. Um, Patrick Weeks knows the world as well as anyone, and and you know, um, if Dave Gator could have picked anybody, it was Patrick uh, to carry on the writing. Uh, John Epler's still an amazing cinematographer, and and working with Sarah Hayward to to make amazing scenes and stuff. There's, there's a lot of incredible talent and Bioware as a studio still has a lot of it's, it's, you know, founding old guard folks who were there when I was starting and showed me the ropes, uh, you know, <laughs> ropes, ropes. Um, sorry. It's like, I've been talking for an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Luke Christensen was like literally the guy who wrote BG one almost by himself. And he was still there. Um, you know, Preston with Tom Nick was a, was a very senior designer when I started and is still working on Anthem. And yeah, the, the, the list, obviously Casey's back and the, the list goes on of, of kind of the old blood and DNA and stuff. And that's, that's always a good sign, I think, because there's some continuity while there's also some fresh talent. Yeah. I can't wait to see what comes out. And I bet you can't wait to see either now being in this very different position where you don't know what that thing is going to look like and what yeah. the stories are going to be. And that has to be just a fascinating prospect of I'm, you should stream your entire playthrough of whatever right. new Dragon Age thing comes out. I, that's pay-per-view right there. Right. Uh, right. 
Just frowning the whole time. I'd be like, yeah, well, I would have done this, this, and this differently. I don't like this character. No, 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 not not speaking. Just going <laughs> on occasion. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I think it'll be awesome. That I, I hope so. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Your podcast that we did last year was one of my like top three most downloaded ever. Yeah. Um, people, yeah, I know. You were like right around the top. Uh, people care about dragon age they really enjoyed everything you to say about it so as soon as i decided that i was going to start doing more of these q a shows you were on the top of my list of like i bet mike would be an awesome guest for this and guess what <laughs> i was right uh so let me let you plug a few things uh, where can people find you on twitter and what's your twitch channel Sure. Uh, twitter and twitch are actually the same so they're both uh, at of some degree or twitch.tv slash and that's just mike underscore laidlaw uh, there is, I think there is a Mike Laidlaw with no underscore who occasionally gets DMs, probably angry, uh, fired t- <laughs> towards him. Poor guy. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so those are, those are both available. Um, Twitch, uh, Thursdays and Saturdays, generally speaking, are, are my good thing. If I'm out of town for seeing friends or travel or business or something, then, then obviously I, I try to post it on the Twitch channel, but I don't always remember. Um, but generally speaking, the indie stuff's on the Saturday nights. Uh, Thursdays are kind of whatever I'm kind of in the mood to play. Uh, and then I have been doing some daytime stuff since I'm, I'm now apparently a man of leisure. <laughs> it has to feel so different compared to what you've been doing. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super happy to hear that it sounds like you're super happy in the spot you're in right now. Uh, 2018 is going to be a super big year of change for you, but I'm excited to see what you work on next. And I'm, as always, excited to see what games are going to stream and listening to kind of your insight on those different design decisions. Thanks so much. All right, perfect. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.